Our Father, it's good to be here this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity now to examine uh, these nearing the final books of the Bible, Lord, as we look at Second Peter and Jude. And we thank you so much for the, the great favor you've done to us. As the Bible draws to a close, we are warned about uh, those that we should avoid and those that we should be wary of, and we are exhorted to stay true to the true gospel and to uh, the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us this morning, Lord, as we uh, engage our minds and begin to try to weed out distractions and to look into Second um, Peter and Jude and learn and grow in, in our faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you are doing uh, this for credit, if you are doing the, the Bible book reviews, um, just to make sure to look at your syllabus, Second Peter and Jude is one BBR. Uh, just just combine them together. That is my gift to you. Um, but they're they're close enough that it's it's easy to easy to do that. So I just uh, I, these are some of my uh, my quote unquote heroes of the faith, um, uh, the false faith. Uh, they're they're heroes of a false faith. Uh, so uh, per Ed's suggestion, uh, who can name this guy right there? I think our Weight Watchers group is meeting upstairs. Apparently, uh, who's that guy? Mike Murdoch. Mike Murdoch made his name as the piano player for uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Um, and then he decided, wow, there's a lot more money in being the person in front of the camera instead of the person in front of the piano. Um, Rod Parsley, very famous for marching across uh, his stage to... I wonder what is happening up there. Um, I think it's WWE. Uh, yes, that's it. Very famous for uh, getting really worked up, and he marches across the stage and gets his people all marching and, and giving lots of money. Um, I almost hesitated putting him in here. John Hagee's actually done some decent things, um, but he does some weird things too. Uh, so he's our, he's our lone uh, dispensational false teacher. So, uh, <coughs> uh, you know, if he invited me to lunch, I'd go out to lunch with him. But he, he does some very weird stuff too. Uh, however, one thing he does do that I like, whatever series he's preaching, he has the coolest background murals always, always made. Uh, I'm praying for that actually, not, not because of him, but just because I think it's cool. All right, we're going to look at Second uh, Peter and Jude. Um, and you'll see why they are, they are put together. As a matter of fact, in almost any uh, New Testament commentary series uh, over the past couple of hundred years, <clears throat> you'll have you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all the way through. And when you get to the volume on Second Peter, it also has Jude in it. So all, that traditionally, Second Peter and Jude go together, even in commentary series. So we'll look first at Second Peter. <clears throat> I love it when books are easy to remember the author. So it's the Apostle Peter. Now, uh, this is the most debated book in the New Testament regarding authorship. Uh, this is the one that's most questioned. And of course, uh, just my luck, Second uh, Peter is the book that I was assigned to write a paper on the authorship of that book uh, in my last semester in seminary while I was preaching here at Grace every Sunday, by the way. Um, so it, it's a complicated issue. But Second Peter was the final book that maybe at least some local churches were dragging their feet a little bit in, in receiving it. Um, but then it was eventually universally recognized, and that's not an issue now. Um, <clears throat> now, Jude is so similar that many think that someone else copied Jude and just put Peter's name on it. 
um, that they would say that Jude came first. Second Peter was just a uh, just a copy. So that was one issue that came up that has since been disproven. But so what's the issue? Well, the issue is this. Uh, the Greek of Second Peter is completely different than the Greek of First Peter. Uh, it does sound like two different people wrote it. In fact, um, there are 57 Greek words in Second Peter that occur not only not in First Peter, but nowhere else in the New Testament. So does that prove anything? It actually proves nothing. Um, if you say, I want to judge uh, who painted this painting, I know this one was by this guy, but this one can't be by him because it's totally different. Well, does that actually, can you prove that with just two? You can't. You would have to have many, many examples of somebody's work to establish a pattern. And one example, First Peter doesn't establish a pattern at all. Um, there's no problem with First Peter being completely different than Second Peter. Uh, I'll give you an example. I've had to, I've had to write articles for magazines, and those are formal. Um, when I text my wife, totally different. Um, it, comparing those two, would you say, well, they can't be the same author? No, you can't do that. So uh, we will take Peter as the, as the author of Second Peter. Um, the issue, though, is, is the comparison, the, the similarity between Jude and Second Peter. By definition, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in giving this to scriptures means that he is perfectly capable of inspiring two different letters written in two different uh, time periods saying the same things for different or similar purposes. That, that's okay to do. There are some false assumptions associated with questioning that, which I'll go over here in a moment. But the emphasis on false teaching in both these books, it lets us know that toward the end of the Bible, there, there's a crescendo. Um, Second Peter and Jude just are, are screaming to us, be careful. Watch out for false teachers. Now, the people I put up there on the on the slide, uh, obviously, those are kind of the extremes. The ones I'm more concerned about now are, are for example, a local church here in our city that has the name Bible Church in it that I've mentioned before um, that is now uh, following Bethel Church and their whole, their whole craziness. And we would say, uh, you know, Six months ago, we were kind of on the same page. And now we would say that now they're going down the road of listening to false teachers. When you listen to a false teacher, then you become one. Did you catch that? You, you can't say, well, I still believe in orthodoxy, but I'm going to follow after this system of belief that denies the deity of Christ, by the way, says that prophecy is real again. Uh, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't say, I'm a follower of somebody, but I'm not a false teacher. If you're a follower, then you're, you're right in there with him. So that's where my concern is and, and where it's so important for us to be discerning. When was it written? Early 60s, early to mid 60s, uh, right around the time of the, the beginning of the great persecution under Nero, um, either before or after, um, possibly after. But it's interesting that in, in 1 Peter, in First Peter, the concern is much more how do you how do you live in light of persecution. Second Peter, persecution has probably started, but his main concern now is the the false teachers. So it's very important. Who are the false teachers of Second Peter and Jude? Um, we don't know precisely who they are, but I gave you five uh, kind of uh, of their qualities. They advocated immorality. Now. Uh, can we think of any preachers that you know that just stand up in the pulpit and say, you should be sexually immoral? No, they don't do that. 
Can you think of any preachers that we know um, who say, if you're under grace, you can do whatever you want because you're saved no matter what you do? Yes, there's lots of those. That is advocating immorality. Whether we preach here, we preach if you're in Christ, you need to be sanctified. You need to be set apart. You need to be holy. Um, they had boastful claims. Um, <clears throat> some, of those, those, some of those men and women uh, that I put on the screen, there's one thing almost all of them have in common when they get attacked, um, meaning somebody asks them to prove their view from the Bible, and they call that an attack. Uh, they put themselves up on pedestals. They get angry. They make these big claims to be from God. Benny Hinn is famous for um, saying that of his critics, he would like to take what he called a Holy Ghost machine gun and shoot them all. That, it's that sort of anger uh, that, that comes out because they're boastful. They, they claim to be who they aren't. Um, they're greedy for gain. We see that everywhere uh, today. Isn't it funny that... Um, that false theology and false teaching goes hand in hand with greed, that the two go together. Uh, they blaspheme angelic beings. They are, they are uh, of themselves. Uh, they, they don't care for God's created order, and then that they're doomed to destruction. Um, that's a scary thing. It just, just to be clear, these are not just weirdos. These are men who occupy pulpits right now, this day. These are people, uh, these are women. Uh, Paula White, unless she repents, is doomed to destruction. She claims to be a prophet of God. She, she proclaims a gospel that's so weird, so off, so anti-Jesus uh, that you can't possibly put her in a legitimate category. So uh, this is serious business. This is eternity we're talking about. And, and so, you know, what does that have to do with us? Just a little application. You know, when you have friends, family, um, and people you know that are following after somebody like this, we have an obligation to warn them and tell them, do you understand what you're listening to is wrong and here's why? Um, what do you say if somebody says, well, I, I know the truth, but I just really like this guy's preaching and it encourages my heart. What, what do you say to that? Give me some ideas. The Bible says have nothing to do with them. The Bible says have nothing to do with them. Second and third John. What, what else would you say to them? Their gospel is accursed. I, I would also challenge somebody um, who says that they can listen to something that's false over and over again and not be impacted at some level. That's pretty arrogant uh, to say. I mean, we, we are sheep after all. We're, we're not, you know, the, the Lord didn't say, uh, uh, feed my rocket scientists. He said, feed my sheep. We, we need the right food. So you take enough bad stuff in. Uh, if you know somebody that's even... Uh, you know, uh, deciding to go visit a church because it's a little more exciting. Their music is a little bit more rock and roll and so forth. Don't. Why, why would you do that? Um, why would you do that? Now, I do know uh, that we're, we've got somebody going undercover uh, to an event pretty soon just for observation's sake, so uh, we're, we're going to pray him through that. Yeah, Ben. Oh, when somebody said something like that to me, I just offered them a glass of water with just one drop of strychnine in it. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> One drop of strychnine. Very good. All right, let's get to some themes. I already said this one, false teaching. Basically, all of chapter 2 and some important parts of chapter 3 deal with false teaching. And, and so, you know, when you, when you come upon these situations, when you come upon, well, how do I deal with, we, we had a discussion about this in our leadership meeting uh, this past Tuesday night. How do you, how do you deal with, 
people who are beginning to go off the rails. How do you deal with somebody who has been orthodox and is now subtly putting an emphasis on something that is not the emphasis of the gospel, like social justice? How do you deal with that? Well, you go to Second Peter and you just read and begin to get feed your soul on how you're to deal with that. Um, and you notice one of the things that it, uh, he never says is get really mad and irate. That, that's not the point. Uh, the point is to be guarded. The point is to be wise. The point is to is to eat and drink truth and to help those around you do the same. And so you would expect this. If false teaching is a theme, you would expect Christian growth um, to be another theme as well. How do you combat false teaching? Well, with good teaching. We all need it. We all need to be taught. Um, <clears throat> somebody asked me uh, just a couple of weeks ago, well, who's, who's your pastor? Well, I don't have a pastor, but I have, I have lots of preachers I love to listen to, and I listen to every week. Because I want to I be preached to. Now, I have to admit, it's hard for me not to have a professional curiosity on how they put together their sermon and all that. But I have to just put that aside and just listen and have my soul fed. So, so Christian growth. Um, you're, you're going after sanctification. And of course, uh, and boy, this is, people put this down today in evangelicalism, knowledge. They say, oh, well, that's, you're just, you're a head church. You mean because we learn stuff? Um, a head church is one that leaves their cell phones up. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, a, a head church, I've been to those before. A, a head church is where you don't get a sermon, you get a lecture. And, and the difference is, is that a lecture gives you lots of facts that are interesting, um, but doesn't apply anything and, and doesn't push you toward Christ like this. There, there's a difference. But we don't go away from knowledge. What's falsely um, put forward today is that knowledge is somehow the opposite of passion. That I can be passionate for God or I can just be one of those head knowledgeable people. I just want to be passionate for God. I would say that you can't be truly passionate for God without knowledge. Uh, you can be emotional, but lots of people are emotional. Have you ever been to a concert that's just a secular concert? What do people do when there's a ballad going? They're all going ah, like that, right? It's just like going to your local assembly of God. It's no different. It's just emotion based on singing a tearjerker song. And then there's the, uh, there's the theme of remembering, being reminded of the truth. Uh, this is one of my favorites. Um, I quoted this to our, for our men's breakfast yesterday. I had a fantastic turnout yesterday, by the way. I was, I was really happy with that. Um, Peter's at the end of his life, and he says openly, more openly than anywhere else in the Bible, I'm going to tell you stuff you already know, and I'm going to remind you. And you know what he says his reason is? So that after I'm gone, it's so embedded in your hearts that you can continue to repeat it. And that encourages my soul. He's at the end of his life. When you're at the end of your life and your loved ones are around you, what do you want to do? You want to tell them the most important things, the things you've said a thousand times. And so that's a theme that, that should really, um, I think, move your heart. Structure, I gave you an easy one. Holiness, heresy, and hope. Holiness, heresy, and hope. And while you write that down, and it's easily divided into the three chapters, here's the purpose. Christian believers were exhorted to grow in Christ in the face of false teachers and teaching. And I, I like this purpose because it's balanced. Um, it's not, let's just have an emotional, devotional uh, kind of experience um, and make ourselves feel good and pretend that 
that doctrinal issues don't exist. Um, uh, let's just get together and everybody love Jesus and, and we don't want to talk about problems. That's one extreme. The other extreme is we don't want to be the church, and I, I try to be careful of this. You don't want to be the church that every Sunday in the pulpit you're just hammering somebody. Um, that gets That's useful, but it gets old after a while because you need your souls lifted up and built up. And so here's the balance. We're, you're growing in Christ. You're learning in, in your faith um, while being careful um, yeah, concerning uh, the gospel, careful concerning those things that are around you. You know, the best illustration... And ironically for him, he took it out of context, but I, I'll give him a pass. Uh, John MacArthur gave an illustration about why we just preach the word. Why do we not try to do other things? His illustration was from David and Goliath, that David was handed uh, all this armor, and he said, no, I, I'm not familiar with it. And he did what was familiar and what has already worked. He just used his simple sling. And that's, that's the hallmark of a church that's faithful, is we, we've been doing the same thing. Over and over again. Uh, we joke about the phrase, we've always done it that way in the church. When it comes to preaching, that's a great phrase. That's a great phrase. We've always done it that way. So we're exhorted to grow in Christ in the face of false teachers and teaching. A couple of interpretive issues. Chapter 2, verse 1. But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies and here's the issue, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So advocates of being able to lose your salvation would point to 2 Peter 2.1 and say, Aha, see, these are saved people who have now denied Christ. And so is that what it is, the, the loss of salvation of apostate Christians? Well, they make the classic hermeneutic mistake of not um, comparing Scripture to Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, with Scripture elsewhere, um, we would say that they're denying the one who professed their master. They, their character doesn't match their profession. Uh, what Peter is basically doing is mouthing their own confession. I was bought by Jesus. That, that's their confession. Which, by the way, this proves something. It proves that a verbal confession does not prove salvation. Just saying I'm a Christian is meaningless. Um, <clears throat> So that's one interpretive issue. Uh, I, I have another one that's not up here, but I want to go ahead and mention it to you um, just because uh, it's interesting and it's something that I'm kind of passionate about. Second uh, Peter uh, 3 <clears throat> says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it um, will be exposed, or uh, some manuscripts say will be burned up. ESV actually actually nails this and gets it exactly right. Um, the, the interpretive issue is, generally speaking, when we think of the making of the new heavens and the new earth, from Second Peter 3, uh, particularly older translations, the, the general consensus has been that God will utterly, completely destroy everything and then remake everything. I, I even I gave my, my view away. Uh, make everything from scratch. Um, and I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. I, I think that uh, this is not uh, supportable. It says, The day the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. They would say, well, they pass away like, like it died. 
well, my dad passed away. Is he dead? No, he's not. He's alive, and his body will be made alive too. So you can't use that as a proof. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Um, I, when I preached through Revelation 21, first couple of verses, I showed that neither of those words can be used to mean uh, utterly destroyed, completely annihilated. Um, and then the end of the verse, the earth and the works that are done in it, tra- traditionally the translation is, uh, will be burned up. ESV gets it more accurate. It will be exposed. Um, it's the same idea as, as taking metal and, and melting it down so that the dross comes to the top. It's exposed. So uh, you put all that together, just from this verse, even we could say that I, I think we can put a lot of chink in the armor, chinks in the armor of the idea of complete other annihilation. But theologically, uh, from Romans chapter 8, Paul says that creation groans and longs for what? For restoration, um, not for other destruction. And I know that's a metaphor, but in the same chapter, we are aligned with them. That just like creation is longing for recreation, we are longing for recreation. And so now you have to keep that metaphor the same. So my personal view is that um, that of recreation and restoration, and I just I think that gives God more glory. I think somebody could point a finger and say God was unable to restore his creation, so we had to utterly destroy it and start over. Um, that, to me, makes redemptive history kind of not make sense. So that's just a little interpretive issue. It is not a salvation issue. You should not lose any sleep over it. But I personally get more excited about the idea of um, restoration rather than just other destruction. I, I think it just makes a lot more sense. Key passages here. Inspiration of Scripture, uh, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1. That's a, it's a pretty big uh, section for us in understanding inspiration um, because it says that the Spirit of God moved these writers, that no no word of Scripture was given without um, the Spirit. Chapter 3, the coming day of the Lord, um, and we, we've defined that before in our theology discussion, that that is the day of judgment, and then the new heaven and new earth uh, coming in chapter 3 as well. So there's Second Peter. You're going to find a lot of similarities in Jude. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, um, like James, by the way, and I love his humility. In verse 1, he just says he's the servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say anything else. I, I, this is why I didn't get to write a book of the Bible, because if I was the half-brother of Jesus, I, I would have put that on the back cover, written by the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who was the first to come to faith out of all of his brothers and sisters. Uh, anything I could have said. And he just says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And he stands with all of us. We don't know who the recipients are, but it was to an unknown church or possibly a group of churches. His original intent, as you read through Jude, it seemed to be to write a positive letter of commendation. But he learned of false teachers. And so like a good pastor, he also gave warning as well. Again, here the interesting part about Jude is its similarity uh, to Second Peter. And how similar is it? Well, it's uh, 19 of the 25 verses of Jude you can almost lay on top of verses in Second Peter. It's, it, it, it looks to be almost like a, a photocopy, but it's not. It's, it's two separate books. 
When was it written? It doesn't reference the destruction of Jerusalem, which almost every book uh, does in one way or another. But it seems most likely to be after the death of Peter. So it's probably close to the end of of that uh, decade, 68, 69, 70, somewhere in there. So that would put it probably anywhere from two to ten years uh, different from Second Peter. Not a huge difference, but different enough that they were in different time periods. Now, here's a major argument for, uh, for liberals. And they will say, well, one author used the other author as a source. And we haven't lectured about this in a long time, but this is operating under uh, what is called source criticism assumption. Source criticism, uh, it, and criticism isn't used in the, in the terms of, uh, well, I don't like it. It's just simply analyzing it. Source criticism is the study of trying to figure out that Matthew didn't really write Matthew, but instead he did a big research paper by people we don't really know. Or that John wasn't really written by John, but he, but somebody did a big research paper and just stuck his name on it. In other words, it attempts source criticism attempts to separate the so-called original source with the copy that we have today, to put some degrees of separation between them. Um, source criticism uh, had its heyday in the uh, in, in the seventies, eighties, and, and even nineties, um, and yet now it's generally accepted. It's like, well, of course they, they knew that. It's sort of like uh, issues concerning homosexuality today. Today, in our culture, it's not a debate anymore, is it? We've lost the debate to the culture, and it's assumed to be right. It's the same as evolution. Um, uh, people say they speak of evolution like it's been proven. It's never been proven. And yet now it's spoken of as if it's proven. So source criticism says, uh, well, we don't really know the true sources uh, for example, those who are really heavy into source criticism came to the conclusion at major conferences um, in, in, in the in the mid 80s and 90s that there are only 12 places in all four Gospels that we really know those were the actual words of Jesus. Now, what does that do for your preaching? It makes it worthless, doesn't it? And in the name of academic scholarship, uh, they they've they've put on this big. Um, this big idea that we know that these aren't original, but uh, uh, they existed. So it's okay. You can sort of trust your Bible, maybe. There's no encouragement to that at all. So it's source criticism that makes the, the assumption that if Second Peter and Jude are that similar, then something smells. Somebody did some copying. What does that say? What does that say about the Holy Spirit? It says that the Holy Spirit is utterly incapable of inspiring both of them. That we just made rules for God. Um, Anybody ever repeated something to your children? I think this is the Holy Spirit repeating right near the end of the Bible. Watch out for false teachers. And if you didn't hear me the first time in 2 Peter, let me give it to you again in Jude. So it's, it's a terrible assumption. It's not just an academic argument. It, it really is denigrating to the Lord. Um, by the way, Jude and Peter knew one another. You think it maybe is possible they had some conversations on occasion? Of course they, of course they did. Um, I, own a, I own a ton of commentaries, and one of the things I've noticed uh, with a smile is that in the theological world, commentaries quote one another, often completely plagiarizing um, another one. And it's just sort of common practice. You kind of know that. Uh, that's just the way it is. 
And so uh, what's interesting is that commentators who write in the same era often know each other. And so you read their commentaries like, okay, which came first, the chicken or the egg here? So Jude and Peter, of course, they, they would have known one another. But there's two good reasons to believe that Jude came last. Peter predicted that false teachers were coming soon. Jude says they're here. Um, and so there's a, there's a sense in which we get an order there. And then in verses 17 and 18 of Jude, Jude almost verbatim uh, cites 2 Peter 3.3. 3. So it seems that in this case, Jude is quoting Peter's prophecy about the soon coming false teachers. Does that mean he copied them? No, it means, by the way, that Jude believed that 2 Peter was scripture. Uh, so we, we see evidence of in other places of New Testament scriptures uh, quoting other New Testament scripture. That We've looked at that before. Historical themes and theological themes, uh, false teachers, God's preservation. So you see the positive, God's preservation, and then the false teachers. And it, it, is, it is, does seem that Jude was beginning, and this is obviously just taking the human side. It seems he was beginning with a letter of commendation and then got inspired for about 13, 14, 15 verses uh, to say, by the way, false teachers. And it turns out that was kind of the main thrust of his letter. God's preservation, great verses uh, on that. Literary structure, you have the anatomy of apostasy, the first 16 verses, and the antidote for apostasy, the last uh, seven or eight verses. The antidote for apostasy is basically the biblical gospel. And that, that's what you stick to. And the purpose is that Christian believers were called to earnestly contend for the Christian faith. We're called to earnestly contend for the Christian faith. <clears throat> um, in fact, I want to just take a moment here. Actually, we'll do that when we get to the key passages. A couple of interpretive issues, again, by people who seek to um, poke holes in the Bible. I don't understand why anybody does that personally. Uh, and, they, and by the way, th- those types uh, look at us who just believe the Bible. They, they look at us as lower forms of life than they are. Because we just don't question the Bible. Uh, I've said this before. One of my seminary professors said over and over again that the word of God is safe only in the laps of people in the church. That's where it's safe. Not once in the seven years I've been at Grace Bible Church has any church member come to me and said, I, I'm really questioning the authorship of Second Peter and it's bothering me. We just believe it and we should. A couple of interpretive issues. Jude uses a source... Uh, source criticism doesn't say that you can't use sources. Uh, we, we understand that. Uh, Luke used some sources, but source criticism says that everything comes from other sources. There's no real inspiration from the Holy Spirit. But what are we to do with this? Jude uses an extra-biblical source. Um, and we know what it's called. It's called the Assumption of Moses. That's one ancient source he uses. In verse 9, and he uses another one uh, that you can, you can go by today, First Enoch. Um, it's an apocryphal book written between the time of the Testaments. Um, both of those are useful, probably mostly, if not completely true, but they are never have been accept- they've never been accepted as, as Scripture. So what are we to do with this? Because just, just on, a, on a human level, I get nervous when biblical writers quote other people. That just makes me nervous. 
Um, Jesus only quoted the Old Testament. So we, we sort of say, well, you're, you're safe there. So what do we do with that? Well, very simply, when directed by the Spirit, this is fine. Those quotes now become Scripture, but only those quotes. That doesn't mean that all of First Enoch now we would consider Scripture. Um, just a side note, there are multiple places in the New Testament, uh, and this is debated one way or another, there are multiple places in the New Testament that many scholars believe were Christian hymns before they were included in Scripture. Um, I'll give you one example. My, my favorite one uh, in Colossians chapter 1. Here's what some say is a hymn. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the densest and the most compact and the most full theology of Jesus Christ, the most full Christology anywhere in the Bible. Um, if I wanted my children to memorize their Christology, that's what I would give them. And so many would say that was a Christian hymn in the decades prior to the Apostle Paul writing the inspired letter of Colossians. So the debate is, well, does which came first? It doesn't matter. If it was a hymn, then that particular hymn is inspired, not because it was a hymn, but because now it's been included in Colossians. So does that kind of make sense? So if for whatever reason the Holy Spirit wants to quote First Enoch, then that was up to him. But let me let me take away a a um, natural misconception. It's not that the Holy Spirit was flipping through First Enoch one day and said, "Hey, this looks pretty good. I think I might include this in Jude." Who was probably behind uh, the original authorship of First Enoch? At least that one little section. The Holy Spirit was. He's sovereign. Right? So it's not, that, it's not that the Holy Spirit said, oh, that was good, I wish I thought of that, but I'll go ahead and quote it. Uh, that's not the case at all. This is a good lesson, by the way. Uh, it's a good lesson that authors have good things to say, even if we might disagree with some of their other material. We wouldn't agree with everything in First Enoch, most likely, but it, it is a good lesson. Uh, we talk about this here in BTI. Anytime I can, I talk about this, that it's good to read Christian books, but you read critically, Right? It's okay to put a big red X on one page. Okay, this guy went off the rails here. Um, that's all right. I'll give you another example. Titus 1, verse 12. The Apostle Paul quotes Epimenides of Crete. He was a well-known local poet, and he says, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Um, I, I think it was kind of wise on Paul's part that he quoted somebody else saying that, <laughs> writing to believers in Crete, by the way. So would we use Epimenides? Uh, would we have him come preach in, in our pulpit? No, he, he, couldn't even, he couldn't even be a member of our church um, because he, he didn't know Christ. But the Holy Spirit used uh, Epimenides in Paul's attempt to give credence to his own assessment that there were Cretans who were sabotaging his gospel efforts, his ministry efforts. Even today, when you call somebody a Cretan, right, that's a, that's a cut down. 
Uh, I would hate to be somebody who lives in Crete. Like, sorry about that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a b- built-in cut down. So the, the bottom line, I think the lesson I want to take from this, the Holy Spirit gets to write the way he wants to. And it's not for us to question. A couple of key passages. Chapter 1, or there's only one chapter, uh, verses 3 and 4. I just want to read this because it's, it's so spectacular. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, stop right there. There's only one way of salvation, and that is the one thing we have in common with every believer in Christ. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. What is the faith? It is not a feeling of faith. It is not believing God to help me in my time of trial and distress. The faith is the body of, of work that we believe derived from Scripture. What kind of faith is it? It was once for all delivered, past tense, to the saints. There is no new theology. There are, no, there are new understandings as we grow in our knowledge of God's Word. But when, when somebody wants to say, well, I, I'm... I want to give you a prophecy from God, or, or we're we're a church that believes in prophecy. This this is an ironclad argument. The faith has been delivered. There's no new knowledge. Does anybody know who Derek Prince is? Self-proclaimed prophet uh, preaches at a quote-unquote church in Singapore of thirty thousand people. He's on his America tour right now, um, and he just wrote a book. And I don't remember the exact title. It's something to the effect of the hidden power of Holy Communion. And the entire book is based on his assumption that by literally taking communion, uh, you begin to receive healing and wealth and prosperity. Uh, He tells the story that his own child was healed from some horrible disease because they gave him communion every day until he was healed. Um, Sorry, Bible doesn't teach that. It is a faith once delivered. Um, the book would be good as a coaster, and that's about it. Another key passage, chapter 1, verse 9. Again, now the chapter, verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That is a fabulous verse to speak to charismatics about who talk about speaking to Satan or rebuking Satan. But we're not told to do that. The, the greatest angel of all time Michael didn't go head-to-head with Satan. He appealed to the Lord. And so um, we, we would say, no, you're not going to, you, you should not do that. And then, of course, and you've heard this, we've read this a thousand times from the pulpit, the great doxology of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, who keeps us in the faith? God does. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a great doxology. What a great, that would be a great ending to the Bible, but it's not. It just introduces us, oh, one more thing, and then you have the book of Revelation. So, uh, in fact, I think that doxology would be good for us to end on. I'm going to pray, but then we have a few minutes for questions if you, if you want. Thank you, Father, for Second Peter and for Jude and the, the, the flags waving to us to keep us on, on the road of true faith, of the faith once delivered. I praise you and thank you for the gospel. I praise you and thank you that you are the one that keeps us from stumbling. You are the one, and, and I know we can't really fathom this in our own minds, but you are the one who will present us blameless before you. 
That is an awesome thought to think that every sin we've ever committed from the moment we could choose sin to the last sin we'll commit on this earth has been cast away from us, cast to the bottom of the sea. It's been cast as far as the east is from the west. And you will present us blameless before yourself, holy and able to enter into your kingdom, qualified to be in your presence. And we thank you and praise you for that. Lord, I pray for those that are maybe struggling with family members or friends um, that are wanting to follow after false teaching, follow after the, the excitement and the glitter of those who would say that they have the real revelation. I pray, Lord, for those situations. I pray that you would give us courage, that you would give us kindness and grace and great intelligence to explain and proclaim the true gospel to proclaim the Trinity, and to proclaim the faith that has been once delivered. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.